Glad that you could be here. Um, today is Feed the Need, and so Feed the Need is about feeding uh, people that need uh, food. And so uh, what we do here at Outward Church is we want to love Jesus and live outward. And what that means for us is that um, we want to take the faith that we have in God and we want that to express itself in tangible ways in our community. So we want to be uh, conservative theologically and liberal socially. So we want to serve our community in that way. And so one of the ways that we do that is uh, by serving over at Richmond uh, Elementary and really other elementary schools uh, where we have some uh, burgeoning things that are, that are happening, relationships that are being developed and, and things of that nature. And we're a small church, and so we're, um, we're doing everything that we can to be able to serve in that way. But there's kids that go to, to school, and on Monday morning they show up, and they just haven't been fed very well or, or maybe at all. Uh, throughout the weekend because of various issues at home, just people not having food or um, or abuse or what have you. We're we're not entirely sure. Not everybody is being abused. Not everybody, you know, um, is being neglected. But um, what our our hope is that we're able to give these kids some food for the weekend. And so we have a a program called Backpack Buddies that we really joined with what the school had already kind of started. And so we're providing food for that. And at first we were giving them snacks and like Rice Krispie treats, and as you can imagine, by the time they got home, those were gone. And so then we said, okay, we're going to make it difficult uh, for them to eat this stuff before they get home. And so uh, now we're giving them raviolis and I, I don't know, some other stuff. And so stuff that's more nutritious than just snack food and so forth. So we do that. We, we provide for that. And so one of the ways that you can serve is uh, by helping to, to, to pack those, those bags. You can do that through your community group. Um, our various community groups help serve in that way. You can give toward that um, uh, through our you know, online giving apparatus. Just go online and look for give. You can give you know, in the boxes around here. But th- those are ways that we support this. But uh, Feed the Need is really about supporting that work. And so if you can uh, help with that, one of the ways that you can do that is you can just, there will be food carts here. Part of, the, part of the proceeds from that go to Feed the Need and give donations and things like that. We've invited the community, and so we're going to, you know, hang out, and there's going to be a band out there. It's going to be incredible, and so that would be fantastic. Uh, secondly, in regards, in regards to giving, let me just say this, that we're a church and, and we're growing and so uh, if you've been here for a little while and you're still trying to decide, okay, you know, how do I fit in? How do I uh, be a part of this? Well, there's no membership fee <laughs> at all. So you can just come and you can just be here and, and nobody would ever say anything. You get lost in the shuffle. Or you could be somebody who is, is helping in some ways. And, uh, and that is through serving, helping with feed the need and so forth. But giving regularly would help us. As we go into the fall right now, uh, we have increased needs in, in various uh, areas and, and things of that nature. And so you could help serve. Listen, small gifts are okay. Give small gifts. Uh, give large gifts. We, we don't turn down large gifts either. But um, that would help us continue on the mission that God has given us to serve our city. And so that would be so great. Thank you so much for, for those of you that are giving and you've given faithfully, thank you so much. Um, so uh, that's, that's, that's my spiel this morning. So listen, we're going to be in the book of Daniel again. And so if you, you can turn there to Jan- Daniel chapter 2. But what we've been talking about is that um, Daniel, the book of Daniel, is really, um, is really a book about us in a lot of ways. It is for us, as all scripture is, but Daniel especially. It's, it's during a time period when uh, these uh, Jewish men, these, these, these men from Israel, are taken uh, in exile to Babylon. 
And they're put into local city government, in the city of Babylon, basically. And so Babylon takes these men, and they, they were uh, men of stature. They were men who um, came from royalty. They, they had some smarts. They were good-looking, as I, as I said, and, and things of that nature. And so here they are. They're in the midst of Babylon, and they're trying to live out their faith in a way that's meaningful, and they're trying to adhere to what God has called them to in the midst of this, uh, this city. Now, uh, the reason why this equates with who we are and where we are in life is because too often, as American Christians, we get so comfortable and, and we just kind of don't even recognize what's going on around us because it's just the air we breathe and it's, and if, if it's like a, a fish in water. I mean, a fish doesn't know what water is. It's just what the fish lives in. It's the air we live in. We're just living in this society. And so we think to ourselves that America is the greatest country in the world, perhaps you, you think that. And so we, can, we have the freedom to express our religion and so forth. But too often what takes place is that th- some of those things are true, but but in many ways, uh, what happens is, is that we begin to think that we're not in exile, but really the totality of Scripture shows us that we are not home yet. We're not really in the best place to live out our faith. We're actually in exile. And so in many ways, we're just like Daniel. And so we start seeing these evidences of the fact that we live in exile and that we're living in a place that is very much like Babylon and we start seeing these evidences of, of just small bits of persecution here and there. We start seeing our culture start to change in drastic ways. And uh, we start seeing more violence and hostility and things of that nature as, as we pull further and further away from Judeo-Christian values. Not that values save you, but they do preserve a culture. But we see our culture beginning to unravel And if we don't think about the fact that we're actually living in exile and that we're living in a place that is very distant from who God is and what his kingdom will ultimately look like, then we're totally going to miss it. And so what the, the question uh, that we want to answer is this, is out of Psalm 137, it's basically a poem that's, that's talking about people from Israel who are being taken into exile, taken into captivity, and they're sitting by the river Babylon, and their captors are saying, hey, play us some of your songs, uh, you know, some of your old church songs. And these people from Israel are basically saying, like, how can we sing the Lord's song when we're in Babylon? How can we sing God's song when we're in the midst of this stuff? And so whether it's very real to you and apparent to you that, man, we are living in a society that is unraveling quickly and becoming more and more hostile towards Christianity, or maybe you're not even thinking that at all, and you're saying, man, America is a Christian nation. Whether, Whether you're in either place, today we need to realize that we need to be able to sing God's song while we're in the midst of Babylon, while we're in the midst of the city of Salem, while we're in this cultural moment, how do we express who God has called us to be? Because the problem is really this, that Christians for too long have gotten it wrong. And we all know this, don't we? 
Christians have, got, have gotten this wrong because one of the things that I do, I was telling my, my wife this uh, just recently, and she said, you do that. And I was, I was, I was going was to criticize you guys, and she was like, you do that, uh, is, is basically like sometimes I walk into a conversation with someone, and I just want to hold back the idea that I'm a Christian pastor. If you, if you, if you know what that's like in, in, in the world, as, as soon as you say, like, I'm a pastor, and maybe you've experienced, I go to church, or uh, you know, I'm, I'm a community group leader at my church, or something like that. People immediately look at you with, with different eyes because of the cultural uh, understanding of what it looks like to be a Christian is, is just is so messed up, isn't it? There's so many different pictures come to mind of what Christians look like today in our society, that our society, our culture looks at people who are Christians today and they just go, I just don't want any of that. And so as soon as you say, I'm a Christian, you immediately want to follow that up with, but I'm not that kind of Christian. You know, I'm not, I'm not that, kind of, that kind of person. I'm not this or that or the other thing. And the problem with that is that sooner or later, what it does is it wears on us. It wears on real moral values that we're intended to have that are really honoring to God. And so we end up in culture and, and think to ourselves, like, you know what? It doesn't matter what you, what you believe. It doesn't matter what this culture does. It doesn't matter what's going on. I, you know, here's what I believe. That's my personal belief, and I don't need to foist that on anybody else. And so we start thinking in those ways, and sooner or later, our understanding of who God is begins to erode away. Our understanding of what it looks like to be a Christian erodes. And sooner or later, we're not really representing God anymore. Now we're just a Christian in society, and we don't want to tell anybody that we are. Anybody else felt like that? Anybody feel like it's, it's just a little tad bit intimidating? Salem has uh, 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 some of the, uh, or, or many of um, there are a lot of people in Salem who work in the state. I don't know why that was hard for me to say, but work in the state. And our state government today is, is rapidly turning more hostile towards Christianity. Rapidly looking at Christians and saying, you're bigoted. Rapidly looking at people and, and saying, if you express what you believe in this place, you're full of hate and you don't belong here, and you're going to lose your job. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? The question is this. How do we sing God's song while we're in the midst of, of exile? And Daniel expresses that for us. Daniel shows us what this looks like. And so he's been taken into exile, and the, the thing that we see is that he's got the favor of the Lord on him. He has the favor of the Lord on him, and he is somebody who hopes in God. He's, he's somebody that rests in who God is. And so here he is in the midst of this cultural moment, and they're trying to lavish incredible food from this, this uh, king on him and on his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're, they're trying to, to induce them, entice them, seduce them into this culture. And so Daniel kind of stands up along with his friends and says, listen, we don't want to participate in this. I don't want to defile myself with this food. And so he openly says, like, this would be sinful for me. And so could we perhaps go this direction? 
Could we perhaps try this out? And so he responds graciously in the midst of this and says, thank you very much, but I don't want to defile myself in this way. Could we go in this way? And God honors this decision. So this is how he's singing the Lord's song. So then in chapter 2, we run into a new problem. And here's what chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 says. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Just a slight threat. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to mutilate you. Verse 6, but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make uh, the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them too. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now, what you're seeing here is, uh, I believe, an exemplification of what our society is and what it does. What's happening here? Well, uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has had a dream, and unlike Martin Luther King, it's not a good dream. He's saying, he's not saying, I have a vision for you and for your future like a good leader would, but he is saying, uh, I had a dream and you better tell me what it is. And the reason why he needs to know what the dream is is because it seems like he has probably forgotten what the dream is. He woke up and he's like, I had a horrible dream, but I can't remember what it was. And so he's forgotten or he's trying to test his magicians and sorcerers and the Chaldeans, which is a junk drawer term for all of these guys that uh, jack around with magic and things of that nature. And so uh, he is going after them, and, he, and he's saying, I want you to tell me the dream. But what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar at this point 
is really kind of interesting because Nebuchadnezzar is uh, really the world power. He would be a little bit like uh, the president of the United States, except even more powerful during that time. He is the ruler of not the free world, but of the world in a sense. Nebuchadnezzar, here's this guy. He has had all of the success military battle after military uh, victory, and, and he is incredibly successful. And what really messes him up is he has a bad dream one day. And so he goes to his cabinet, essentially, and he says, I'm going to wipe all y'all out if you do not tell me what my dream was and what it means. And so what we see from this is that Nebuchadnezzar is going into this situation, and he is trying to find truth. He's trying to find truth. He's trying to find out, you know, what's going on? What's going on in my life? How can I figure out what's going on with, with my life? How can I figure out what this says about me? How can I figure out what's going on? See, Nebuchadnezzar is a lot like us, and that is because his greatest ambitions are tied to his greatest fears. His greatest ambitions are tied to the things that freak him out the most, He's very ambitious in the world, and we'll get into the dream in the next couple of weeks, but his ambitions at the world and what he wants to become are coming out in his dreams like all of us do. I've had a dream a few times, especially as I was beginning uh, the church, that I was standing on the stage all of the sudden. It was like I woke up, I'm standing on stage, and I have nothing prepared. It's, it's a horrible dream. I did have all my clothes on, but that, so that was good. But it was, it was, and you're happy about that too, even in a dream. But, um, but uh, the, those, our dreams come out in, in life. Our dreams come out in, I'm sorry, our, our life comes out in our dreams, I should say. And so what takes place is that this guy is beginning to just look for ways to find out truth. And how many of us deal with issues and problems in our life and we look for ways to, like how do I overcome my fears? How do I overcome the things that I'm dealing with? How do I overcome what's happening in my life? See, the people that have always fear that they will have not. And the people that have not always fear that they will never have and the people that are winning at life fear losing at life. And the people who are losing at life fear never winning at life. See, Nebuchadnezzar, is, he's really just exemplifying the same thing that all of us do. He's really just showing us that this is what, this is what it's all about. I mean, when you, when you look at, when you look at different, various stages of life and the things that we're dealing with, whether you're in, in school right now, and you're just kind of going, I just, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this class. I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Our greatest fears are tied to our ambitions. I mean, there's a number of studies about, about the levels of suicide in college and, and things like that. And it's because of great stress based on ambition. It's because of great stress based on that. And how, how many of us have tried to outrun that? They've tried, you tried to out, outrun that and you make it to that place. When I was 21, all, all that I ever wanted to do was I wanted to be in charge on a job site. I, I wanted to be uh, 
a manager. I wanted to be a foreman. And somehow someone was dumb enough to let me do that um, at the age of 21. And um, I don't know why, but I got to this point where I was like, I've made it. I, I'm, here I am, I'm a foreman. I don't know why that's all it took for me to feel like I had made it. I had very low, uh, low uh, horizons, I, I, I suppose. But I got to this point where I was saying, you know, I've, I've kind of made it in life. Now what? Where do I get meaning in life? See, here's the thing. Like, if you have these ambitions and then you get to that point where you, you get those things, all of a sudden you start fearing that you're going to lose them. And so is, is it the hope of the ambitions that you have that really is driving you? Because our world would tell you that your hopes, like you've got to have hope. You can make it in life. You can do it. It's all in you. You are a part of that. But here's the thing. What happens when you get it and then you're in turmoil personally? You're in turmoil personally. And you, let, let's just say that you get it and you get the job and you get the girl and you have the family. And, but we, we know all too well that that doesn't always work out. In fact, oftentimes it doesn't. It doesn't work out because you've got everything that you want, and yet now you want something more. And so it's a different spouse because they would fulfill me more. And it's a different job, or I want more from my job, or I want more money. And so I'll use any means possible to get that. And so our ambitions lead to our fears, and our fears drive us to live in, in various ways. And so what do we begin to do? We begin to start looking for various sources of truth. One of the... Uh, one of the craziest things that we do is we start looking around, we start saying, who has truth in this, in this life? Who, uh, who can I search after? Because this is what he does. The king commanded, verse 2, that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned. And these are the people from his day that are the sources of truth, various sources of truth. These are people who uh, in, in some ways are kind of scientific, in some ways they're, they're not. They have uh, magic spells, they, they have dream books that apparently were very large, and like if you had this kind of dream, then this is what it is, and if you have this kind of dream, then this is what it is. That's kind of why they're saying to him, hey, tell us the dream, and then we'll look, up, look it up in our book, and we'll tell you, you know, how messed up things are for you. And so he's looking to all of these sources of truth, but where are the sources of truth in our life? Where are the sources of truth in our everyday existence? Well, just think about it. I mean, it's, it's friends, neighbors, family members, all, all different kinds of things, all different sources of truth that we could possibly look to and, and find. It, it, it comes from our feelings. It comes from, uh, it comes from uh, you know, Facebook and, and Instagram. We look for sources of truth that say, if I have this kind of life, if I can have this picture-perfect type of existence, then life would be okay for me. If I have this type of wife and, and this type of picture, then, th then things would be okay for me. This type of, of husband, then things would be okay for me. That like, The sources of truth, like when I get to this point, then I will feel fulfilled. My identity will be fulfilled. And how much of that is going on today as we talk about identity? And we talk about uh, what it means to have an identity. And so much of our society is, is living in what Charles Taylor, a philosopher, says is the age of authenticity. I think I mentioned this several weeks ago. And, and basically what it looks like is, is that uh, culture is not a place that I, that I derive my meaning from, but culture is a place that I go and express my identity to. Like culture is a canvas that I'm going to paint my life on. And everybody needs to affirm my truth. Everyone needs to affirm who I am and what I'm doing and, and how I'm doing that because this is my truth. 
But the thing that we never really look at is, is like, how does my truth interact with other people's truth? How does my truth, who I am, how does that really interact with that? Is that really truth? Have I really arrived at a source of truth? And, and just choosing my identity, can I really do that? That was really put to uh, the test recently, or not that it was, I think it was a couple years ago, when the, the gal Rachel Dolezal, who was the whitest girl you have ever, ever seen, um, decided to take on the identity of a black person. I think she was working in the NAACP. And she had taken on this identity. And all of a sudden, everyone is brought to this conclusion of, can you really choose your own race? Can you choose to have a new race? Can you, is that really where truth is? And many people, especially people in the black community, said, you cannot just choose to be a minority. That is, that is who we are intrinsically. And now all of a sudden, truth claims are being called into account. But no one wants to talk about that, do they? So where are the sources of truth? And Nebuchadnezzar is expressing that to us. And he's saying, my sources of truth come from all of these, all of these sources that, are, that, that everyone believes are true in our cultural moment. And we as Christians, because of the air that we breathe, it's just a part of who we are. We just believe all of these various sources of truth. We go after all of these things, and we and we we're, we're, we somehow think that I'm I'm a Christian, and yet I live in this society, and yet we are taking it all in, hook, line, and sinker, and we're believing, and we're not living as people who are in exile in Babylon. We're living as people who are citizens of Babylon, and we're a part of that culture. And so we're expressing the identity of a Babylonian rather than of a kingdom citizen, with Jesus as king. And so what takes place is hypocrisy. I say that I believe this, but in reality, I don't. I say that I'm, I'm really a Christ follower, but yet I've be- believed the cultural sources of today, and I've taken that in into who I am. I've taken that into who I am. And so what happens? What happens a chaos erupts. I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I, 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 am, I am going to tear you limb from limb. There's, there's hostility. There's violence. What, the, the, the cultural sources of truth today, one, a big one, is, uh, is science. You know, I'm a believer in science. If I can't prove it, then it doesn't exist. It, you know, science is my guide in life. But too often, what we don't realize is that science is actually leading us to more and more immoral things. It doesn't mean that science isn't true. It just means that science, outside of moral law, is really bad stuff. In fact, I was uh, reading re- recently uh, Tim Keller's book uh, called Making Sense of God, and he says this, in 1926, John T. Scopes was famously tried under Tennessee law for teaching evolution. Few people remember, however, that the textbook scopes used, Civic Biology by George Hunter, taught not only evolution but also argued that science dictated we should sterilize or even kill those classes of people who weakened the human gene pool by spreading disease, immorality, and crime to all parts of this country. What's, Christians have always been against science. You know, it, it happened way back, way back when. But, but Christianity opposes, uh, opposes the types of science that say morality is out the window. Now everything should just be based on science. 
Everything should just, it, it should just go through that filter. In fact, we even see the results of this type of science being played out. Life lived by science and not by morality. Uh, the book Freakonomics had an incredible um, statistic in it at one point that basically said this, that as abortion increased, it's very interesting that crime decreased. And their hypothesis from that was the possibility that maybe when you kill unwanted children, therefore they don't grow up as, as, as children who are unwanted, not uh, reared by a, a parent, not brought up in, in morality. And so therefore, since that child's dead, now crime rate is, is reducing. And so they respond to this in their blog, and it says this. It says, uh, abortion and crime, who should you believe? So there's people who are opposing this, saying, you know, crime rates don't go down because of abortion. But they respond to this, and they say, five states legalized abortion three years before Roe v. Wade, which was the uh, Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion. Crime started falling three years earlier in these states with property crime done by younger people uh, falling before violent crime. You can just look at the statistics, the science, the biology of like you kill these people and oh, all of a sudden life gets more comfortable because we don't have crime anymore, so let's just get rid of them. Science alone cannot be your truth. In fact, they go on to say this, the evidence from Canada, Australia, and Romania also support the hypothesis that abortion reduces crime. So is abortion moral? Should we kill kids so that we have less crime? Should we kill kids so that uh, we no longer have kids with Down syndrome as one country is doing recently? They've eliminated it. Oh, good. Oh, there's less. No, but they've, they've killed everyone. Is science a good determinant factor to live your life by? Is science the, the source of truth? Because science can prove a lot of things. But it cannot prove some things. It cannot prove morality. It cannot prove that. It takes just as much faith to believe in so many things in science as it does in God. And so many people say, you know what, I just, I, I believe in faith. Well, that's a faith step. That's a faith step. As much as believing in God is a faith step for me. And so what is your source of truth? Where do you get truth? For Nebuchadnezzar, it is from all of these sources. And what, what is the result? It's, it's chaos. It's all over the place. It, what does he say here in verse 5? The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you. What's happening? Chaos. Uh, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, is reactionary. He's saying, when I don't get the truth that I want, I'm going to come after you. When I don't hear the truth that I want, then I, then, then I am going to become hostile towards you. There's going to be great hostility when I don't get what I want. And, and so what results from that? There's this incredible insecurity. There's this incredible uh, suspicion. It says in verse 8, the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream, uh, make, make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can uh, show me its interpretation. So what's he saying? He's saying, saying this, like, if you can tell me what my dream was, then I'll believe you. As soon as you tell me what my dream is, I'll remember, or maybe I know what it is, and then, and then everything will be fine. But there's this intense insecurity about who he is. There's an intense insecurity about all of us as we look to our world for identity questions. Who am I? Who am I? And we go to different people and we say, who am I? You realize that that's happening even on a basic level. We tell our kids as they go into school, you don't have to follow the crowd. You don't have to go along with those things. But our kids are going to school and they're essentially saying, who am I? Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? How do I feel good about who I am, my ambitions in life? How can I do that? It's, it is based in a deep sense of insecurity that says, I don't know who I am, but our culture has begun to say, you get to determine who you are. You get to determine who you are. Instead of there being fewer choices, so di different traditional elements within our culture, so you've got the church culture that says you are this. You've got the secular culture that says that you are this. You've got whatever, the scientific culture that says you are this. And so we gain our sense of identity uh, in more traditional times from traditional sources. But in recent years, as we come into this age of authenticity, the, the choices are as many as there are people. Think about all the different types of sexuality that are coming out. Think about all the different, like every day it seems like another, you know, celebrity comes out and says, I'm pan whatever. You know, I'm, 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 I'm like every, every type of sexuality that there is. That's, that's what I am. So they just made that up. So that's my truth. That's my truth that I'm living by. Tell me this. How does, not, how does that not create chaos in our world? It creates massive chaos. And so you begin to start to, to see laws that say, if you do not live by that person's truth according to their truth, never mind your truth, if you do not live according to their truth, then you will be penalized for that. That's what our culture is doing. That's what's going on. And do you know that Christians do that too? You're, no one's living according to my truth, which is morality. And so I'm going to condemn everybody. I'm going to be condemning. I'm going to look at people who do things that I wouldn't do, and I don't create friendships with them. If my neighbor is somebody who lives an, an, an alternate lifestyle that I would never live, then I'm not friends with that neighbor. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be associated with them. I'm not going to be a part of who they are. I'm not going to dine with them. Because I'm separate. You see, Christians are taking that on as well. They're saying, I define my truth. Instead of their truth being defined by something else, by God, what's happening is that these people are saying, like, my truth should be defined by me, and therefore, when I define my truth, what happens is this. It's, it's chaos. Our world becomes more and more violent and more hostile. And for years, people said, you know, as science takes over and religion and belief in God dies out, 
what's going to happen is that the world's going to become less violent because there will no longer be these wars and these things that are happening in the name of religion. But you know what? It's not true. It's not true. As religion supposedly dies out, wars are increasing. As more knowledge is gained, wars and, and genocide and atrocities are increasing. Because when we define for ourselves what truth is, what happens is this, is that when you step on my toes on what my truth is, now I get to be angry with you. Now I get to be hostile towards you. I can kill you or I can just, I can, I can not talk to you as a friend. I can not spend time with you. So there's this deep insecurity and suspicion that's going on. And Nebuchadnezzar has, he was in a really unique position because he had the ability to say, if you tell me the truth here, um, I will give you gifts and you will be a very honored person. But if you don't, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill your house, I'm going to kill everybody associated with you. And so he was in a unique position that most of us are not in because we can't make those threats. I guess we can make the threats, but we're probably not going to be able to follow through with it. But he was able to come down to this point where they were like, we can't answer this question. We can't answer what's, you know, what your main issue is. And so what do they say? When everybody comes down to this place of not knowing, everyone finally comes down to this conclusion of like, we come back to God. Everybody comes to God eventually in some sort of situation. Whether you're sitting in the hospital when someone's dying or you're dying or you're in a horrific situation, God, if you're there, please save me. If you're real, save my friend, save my family member. Everybody seems to come down to this. And this is kind of where these guys come. Like, my, I, you know, I'm within an, inch of, within an inch of my life here. It's flashing before my eyes. And they, and they say this. And I think when you, when you think about this dream, the way that Nebuchadnezzar is, that Nebuchadnezzar, I, I think, believes that his identity is very much wrapped up in, in this. This dream said something to me and about me, and I don't know what it is. And so he's coming with questions of identity. And I think what the Chaldeans answer in verse 10 is, is, is very symptomatic of what we need to hear as well. And he says, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. There's nobody on earth that can tell you the thoughts and intentions. There's nobody who can, who can understand you inside and out. There is not a man on earth that can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now think, think about how, oh, man, think about how uh, ironic that statement is as you, as you look 
through the life of Jesus and so forth. But they say uh, the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. It's, there's some, some, some real assertions here. Like truth can come from multiple sources. That's what Nebuchadnezzar has proved to us. And secondly, um, only God can answer that question, but he's not here. He's not here. Or the gods. They're not here. They don't dwell with flesh. The, the understanding of God is that he's far away, that he's distant. That he's disconnected from who I am. Many people believe that because they, 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 they haven't really understood the God of the Bible and how Jesus portrays him as God. And too many Christians have bought into the lie that somehow God is like disconnected and far from us. And some of you feel that way as well. Like no one can answer this question that I have about my identity. No one can, can tell me who I am. In fact, it's just quicker to go online and try to search for that. It's just quicker to find my identity from, from, from Instagram or Facebook. It's, it's, it's quicker to look to common sources, to find, find the guy or the gal that, that speaks my truth in a way that I, that I want to express it. Because God's not here. God's not with me. God's not a, a part of me. God's, he's so distant from me that I can't really feel him. See, I, I think that's, I, I, I've got, I think I know that that statement was put in there to say something. Like, these people in Babylon have an incredibly jacked up view of who God is. And the, the fury and the rage and the hostility that's coming out of this and saying no one can answer this question unless there was a God of some sort. And so what's happening? What's happening in our culture? Outrage culture. Every day, there's a new outrage. Every day is outrage culture. And we join in with it sometimes. Starbucks cups, Target. I mean, I just go down the list of, of, of things that Christians have bought. What are we outraging about today? All right, yep. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, well, it says in the Bible that. It's outrage culture. And we just join in with it. But see, outrage culture flows out of people who don't know what their identity is. They're confused. And there's hostility that's, that's breeding in there. I mean, how many times have I been hostile towards someone? I get so angry when people say untrue things. I have to stop posting on Facebook because I, I just, I say things that I shouldn't say. You know, I just like, I'm just going to say something. And my wife is like, please take that down. You probably saw one a couple weeks ago. And so I'm just like, all right, I need to stop. I don't spend enough time on this thing to even to care enough. Outrage culture, it's, it's, it breeds in all of us. It's the air that we breathe. We're a part of it. It's what we're doing. So that's why when we walk into culture, we say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm not the kind that tries to boycott Starbucks over them having a Babylonian worldview. Well, they're Babylonians. They're secular. Of course they believe that. How absurd to come into the world and say, you know, Starbucks, you should take on a Judeo-Christian value system that is expressed in the Ten Commandments, and you should live by that. You should take on a sexual ethic that, uh, that is 
supported by the God of the Bible. You're in Babylon. Why would you be outraged? Because all that they're expressing is that, like, if there is a God, that he's distant and he's far away. And when you alienate yourself from that person through your outrage at this culture, when you join in with all of this stuff, when you alienate yourself, you may be the only person that they would ever get to experience God through. You, you may be the only person that they ever get to, to, to finally say, like, I've always believed that if there is a God, then he is far away and distant, but somehow this person has some type of relationship with God where they speak to him, and they feel fulfilled. Like, there's like an internal joy that like life gets messed up, and they go through persecution, and they get thrown in jail, and they go through sickness, or they, whatever, and yet they are people who have this internal happiness God may be far away in my mind, but to that person, God's not far away. Do you see that? Do you see that? Look at Daniel's response here. It it says in verse 12 that everyone's going to be destroyed. And so uh, they go to, in verse 13, it says, So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel is included in all of the wise men and the Chaldeans and all of these people. And they're coming to kill them. I mean, picture that for a moment. Is it, is it a sheriff deputy pulling up to a house saying, uh, Mr. Porter, uh, I'm going to need to take you in and uh, you're being arrested for such and such and such and such and such and such. <laughs> there uh, are, are, are no uh, Bill of Rights. There, there's, there's nothing like that. There's no Miranda rights. It's just like, Daniel, boom, you're done. They're coming to Daniel, and they are going to take him and kill him. Put yourself in that position. What are your thoughts? Is it outrage culture? I'm just going to outrage at this. this. This is outrageous. How can you kill me? Like, I live in a free country. I'm, like, what, what's our response going to be? I, I'm not necessarily saying that we're going to start being, you know, killed here shortly. But I'm saying, what would your response be to that? Is it like Daniel, who is cool as a cucumber here? Verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok. It's almost irritating, isn't it? Daniel, they're coming at you. Run. Grab a spear. Grab a pitchfork. Grab something. Like, defend yourself. Daniel's just like, hey, guys, what's going on? (laughs) Why the sharp objects? (laughs) You're coming to kill me. Oh, okay. I mean, like, what was it? (laughs) What does prudence and discretion look like? Oh, you want... You want, to, you want to take my job? Oh. So, so I'm, I'm losing my business now. Okay, okay. So, okay, so uh, you're, you're going to take everything that I've ever known. I mean, whatever, insert whatever you want there. Insert your situation. 
okay, so you want to talk bad about me. But Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men. It, it is the author, who I believe is Daniel, is saying this. He's saying, um, I'm in Babylon. I, I have nothing to do with this weird Chaldean stuff. Like, I'm, like you, by the way, you're the one that put me here, O King Nebuchadnezzar. Like, I didn't come and tell you that I'm wise. You put me here, and I can't tell you the dream, and so now you're going to kill me? That makes a lot of sense. He replies with prudence and discretion. And he says uh, to Arioch in verse 15, why is the, de the, the decree of the king so urgent? So Arioch says, well, I mean, it's, it's because of this. And Daniel went in. I mean, like, who knows why? Like, why did he get to go in to the king and say, can I get an appointment with you real quick? Can, can we talk for a moment? Um, please don't kill me because um, of this. But somehow he was listened to. Now, what we want to talk about over the next couple of weeks is, is, is why was Daniel so calm in the midst of life circumstances? Why is Daniel so at ease when he's, his life is threatened? Why is he so much like Jesus? Why is he expressing that? Because I don't know if you remember when Jesus is, he's in the garden, you may or may not know this or not, but Jesus is, Jesus is praying before, before he knows he's about to be crucified. And, and he says in Luke, let's see here, Luke 22. He says in Luke chapter 22, verse 41, it says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. So prudence and discretion. There's a, there's a calmness to Jesus' life, and yet he's about to go through um, the most excruciating, the word excruciating means of the cross, the, the most excruciating death that you've ever experienced. And it says he, he, just, he, he, he just got by himself, and he knelt down and he prayed, and he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. So it's not that Jesus was saying like, <laughs> Sure, more pain, cool, that's, that's great. No, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, was saying, like, like this is going to hurt. So as a Christian, when we go into those situations, is it going to hurt? Yeah. Would we pray, God, if it's your will, would you take it? For, is, that, is, that, is that a good thing? Yeah. Pray that. But let me just tell you something. Like, you can't pray that unless God really is your father. You can't pray that prayer. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Like, take away the thing, the thing that's coming for me. Take away the pain that I'm experiencing right now. You can't pray that prayer unless God really is your father. And you can't pray that prayer unless God really is sovereign. 
your belief, your, your hope in God is rooted in the reality that God is ultimately and finally in control and that even in my suffering, even in the midst of what I'm dealing with right here and right now, is, is coming through you. And God, you could stop this if you want to. If it is your will, would you remove this from me? But it comes from something else as well. It comes from this baseline belief, not just that in God we trust Americanized Christianity. So, okay, I'll just trust God in this situation. But it's a wholehearted trust in God that says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what does that say? It says this. Now listen, all of my questions of identity, everything that I'm coming to the world with and saying, hey, sources of truth, science, technology, music, whatever it is, would you please tell me who I am? Tell me who I am. No, what this, what this is saying, and Jesus has it down because he's perfect. He says, the only thing that ultimately matters is your will, Father, would be done. Jesus is saying, I derive my identity from you. You are my source of truth. You're the only one who can speak into this situation and make it any different. And if you choose to allow me to go through it, so be it. Because I want my will to align with your will. Daniel's steadfast hope, his ability to speak with prudence and discretion is because he hopes in that God. And the scriptures say this, if you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. If you, if you have seen Jesus, if you want to understand God, and you want to understand what he's like, then you have seen God. How do you hope in him? You, you look to Jesus and you say, Jesus, who is God? Because ultimately, who God is and what he says, and what, that's where I derive my identity from. He's the only one who can give you and assert to you, you are my child. I created you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know you inside and out. I know what you are supposed to be. I know what you're going to be. I, I know how you're going to respond. I know that you're going to sin against me, and yet I've already forgiven you on the cross. That's, and so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, He's saying, like, this is the way to live life. When Jesus says, like, you want to know which path to take? Like, where, what are my ambitions? Where should I be in life? What, what's the way of my life? How do, how do I get to God? How do I get to understanding in life? Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus says, it's me. You're looking at, at the way. And the way that you follow that is by understanding that truth isn't something that's derived from science. Truth may, may, uh, science may contain some truth. There are bits of truth in all places, and yet Jesus is the originator of truth. 
Think about all of the ills and everything that's happening in our society today and in our world and genocide. It's all coming from questions of identity that are being answered with false truths. That this race is higher than this race, and so this race should die. That's coming from a lie that says that not all men are created equal in the image of God. Jesus says this, like, when you believe in me, when you hope in me, what you have is this, is that you really have a way. Because the truth, when you believe me, when I become your king, when I become your identity, when I am everything to you, what takes place is this, is that life takes on a whole new meaning. And you could be in the middle of Salem, Oregon, and be persecuted and lose your job and be defamed. And yet the truth still rests in me. And you could sit there and you can have prudence and discretion in the midst of your situation. And you know what happens as a result? Life. Life. I just want to live life. Many people are saying, I just live your life however you want. You know what that's doing? It's living death. It's living out your own death because you're living out your own truth because truth doesn't come from you. The age of authenticity is nothing. You don't define you. And that's the best news that you could hear all day because your identity will never rest in what someone else's opinion is. Your identity will never rest in the things that you have. Your identity will never rest and whether you get married or not, your identity will never rest in, and whether you get the right job, your identity will never rest in the social class that you are, in the race that you are, and anything like that. Your identity will rest in one place. And you will be secure. And you'll no longer have to live in hostility. And you will have peace when people come at you and say you're dead. Because you'll, you'll be able to say, you can't kill me. Oh, you might kill this body, but I'm here eternally through Jesus Christ. We pray together. Well, God, my prayer this morning is that... Um, is that all of us in this room would take to heart your scripture. But there are many of us, in fact, all of us to some degree or another, but there are many of us in this room who have no idea that we have bought into the lie that our culture is communicating. But we have bought into the lie that somehow we are the determiners of who we are. And so, God, this morning, we are asking that you would speak to us and that you would convict us, that you'd cause us to think differently, Lord, that we would see that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that we would understand that you're the only way that we can get an identity that's, that's, that's worthy of life. We pray this in your name. Amen.